This episode of Breaking Walls is sponsored by ArtFinder. Are you a painter, printmaker, photographer, designer, sculptor, or other kind of artist looking for a community in which to sell your wares? If you sign up for ArtFinder at artfinder.com by midnight Greenwich Mean Time on Thursday, December 15, 2016, using the Fast Track application code VRAJ1416, your application will be processed within 48 hours and you'll be put forward for inclusion in ArtFinder's new and notable collection for January of 2017. Once again, that fast track application code is VRAJ1416. Sign up today at ArtFinder.com. A R T F I N D E R.com. Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... What's up, guys? Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 47... My name is James Scully. This is it. We've reached December, the last month of 2016. Congratulations on being here tonight. Many good people, guys, definitely didn't make it to the end of 2016 this year. Along those lines, our topic of conversation this month on The Wall Breakers, there's three of them. They're tying up loose ends, taking stock, and celebrating. These are three things that we absolutely all do in the month of December. And because of which, and because today is the 75th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, we're using episode number 47 to premiere a new kind of theme for a Breaking Walls episode, the Radio Chronicles. Each month, along with our normal conversations, we'll also have an additional podcast that uses the vast library of transcribed recorded radio to take a closer look at a moment in time or an important part of our culture. Our first Radio Chronicle will go back in time to the moments in recorded radio history which immediately followed the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the United States' formal entry into World War II. We will tell this story chronologically, picking it up the earliest moment that we possibly can with saved radio recordings, starting on the afternoon of December 7, 1941, working our way through the week, revealing important moments. Before I go on, as I always say, you can get these podcasts by going to soundcloud.com slash thewallbreakers and following us there. You can also find us on iTunes by searching for The Wallbreakers and subscribing. We'd love if you did both of those things. And while you're at it, leave a review and a rating, especially on iTunes, because a good rating and review helps the iTunes algorithm and can help more people discover breaking walls. So tell a friend, tell two friends. Word of mouth spreads these conscious conversations around. And as you heard on the sign-on, if you're an artist looking for a great place to sell your wares, check out ArtFinder.com. I use ArtFinder to sell my wares and absolutely recommend the community. Even if you're unsure, just take the time to check. you got nothing to lose. And plus, if you sign up before midnight of Greenwich Mean Time on December 15, 2016 at ArtFinder.com forward slash four, that's F-O-R, dash Y-O-U slash, or just go to ArtFinder.com, your application will be fast-tracked for approval if you use the promo code VRAJ1416. I'll say that again, thanks to my Brooklyn accent, VRAJ1416. Doing so will automatically sign you up now for a chance to be featured in the new and notable collection of January 2017. 
I'm not going to take up any more time on this open. I want to get right into the body of this podcast. So get ready to be transported back in time to the week of December 7th, 1941, right after this brief pause. I have the distinguished honor of presenting the President of the United States. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. little tiny child, bye-bye, we know now that the date of December 7, 1941, does indeed live in infamy. But what led the United States to this point? Most of the world had been at war since September 1, 1939. On that day, Germany invaded Poland, breaking a promise to France and England in the process. War was immediately declared. All of Europe broke out into conflict. Four days later, on September 5, 1939, the United States proclaimed neutrality a stance publicly displayed for the first two years of the World War and a stance that truly only delayed the inevitable. On June 10th of 1940, Norway surrendered to the Nazis. France fell just 12 days later. On July 12th, 1940, the Battle of Britain began. Great Britain would be pounded by a months-long offensive air raid attacks. The photos of England reduced to rubble have in the years since become chimes for peace and an icon of toughness. On September 27, 1940, the Axis Pact was signed between Germany, Japan, and Italy. As part of that pact, the three countries agreed to immediately declare war on any country that declared war on one of the three going forward. Within weeks, Germany had entered Romania, Italy had invaded Greece, and Hungary joined the Axis powers. But on November 11th, a torpedo raid crippled the Italian fleet at Taranto, and 11 days later, Greece defeated Italy's 9th Army, which opened up territory for Britain to begin a desert offensive against Italy in North Africa amid continued year-end raids. The U.S. tiptoed towards an allied agreement on March 11, 1941, with the signing of the Lend-Lease Act, 
formally allowing the U.S. to provide funds and weaponry to allied powers while also allowing the U.S. to begin its own production for war. That spring in 1941, the situation became even more dire. In April, Nazi forces invaded Greece and Yugoslavia. Both surrendered within the month. This also led to the U.S. freezing all German and Italian assets and contact within America, and by July, mutual assistance had begun between the British and Soviet empires. In August, as the Nazi siege of Leningrad began, the U.S. announced an oil embargo against all aggressor Axis states, an act in direct opposition of Germany and especially Japan. In early December 1941, the U.S. and Japan continued to negotiate under a flag of peace. A meeting between the U.S. and Japanese envoys was slated to begin at 1 p.m. on the afternoon of December 7, 1941. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. By December of 1941, there were four major national radio networks. NBC owned two of them, the Blue and Red Network. The Blue Network was later sold and became ABC due to antitrust issues. The Columbia Broadcasting System had major affiliates on both the East and West Coast, and the Mutual Broadcasting System was home to famous shows like The Adventures of Superman and The Shadow. The Symphony No. 1 in F minor by the modern Russian composer Shostakovich performed as the opening work on this afternoon's Philharmonic program, Artur Rudzinski conducting. Japan has attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and Manila, the Philippine Islands, from the air. The attack is developing. Today, Dean's Taylor's usual commentary will be replaced by a further report on the Far Eastern situation. We pause now for 15 seconds. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is WCCO Studios in Minneapolis and St. Paul. The Twin City temperature, 37 degrees. This is John Daly speaking from the CBS newsroom in New York. Here is the Far East situation as reported to this moment. The Japanese have attacked the American naval base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and our defense facilities at Manila, capital of the Philippines. The first disclosure of this news was made by Presidential Secretary Stephen Early by telephone at approximately 2.25 in Washington. I read the text of this historic announcement at a little after 2.30. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor from the air and all naval and military activities on the island of Oahu, the principal American base in the Hawaiian Islands. That was Secretary Early's message. Short while later, he dictated another message. A second air attack has been reported. This one has been made on the Army and Navy bases in Manila. And here's a last-minute Associated Press flash from Honolulu. A naval engagement is in progress off Honolulu with at least one black enemy aircraft carrier in action against the Pearl Harbor defenses. Secretary Early informed all correspondents and then rushed to the White House to be with President Roosevelt. As the announcement was made, the two Japanese envoys, Ambassador Nomura and Special Emissary Kurosu, were at the State Department. 
Columbia's correspondent in London, Bob Trout, heard the news for the first time from our report from New York. Up to that moment, or very shortly before then, the British capital had not been informed of the Japanese attack on the Hawaiian Islands and on Manila. In view of Prime Minister Churchill's recent pledge that a British declaration of war on Japan would follow almost immediately upon the outbreak of war between Japan and the United States, a British announcement is expected soon. Columbia's correspondent, Ford Wilkins, was put on the air in CBS's regular 2.30 news program on Sunday afternoon from Manila. He was cut off the air suddenly while he was talking about air raid shelters, possibly because of censorship. In communication with Columbia's radio station, KGMB in Honolulu, we heard here in New York that the Pearl Harbor base had been attacked and anti-aircraft fire was heard. A telephone message to the United Press from Fort Schaefer in Hawaii said that 50 planes attacked the island of Oahu. The planes were officially described so far as unidentified in these messages, although later reports that have come in from the press associations definitely identify at least two of these planes as carrying the emblem of the rising sun, the emblem of Japan. The Pearl Harbor attack reported by KGMB in Honolulu is said to have been carried out in other messages by 50 to 100 planes, and a half an hour ago, it was said to be still continuing. The smoke of anti-aircraft guns rose over the Pearl Harbor Navy Yard. Heavy smoke also drifted up from Hickam Field in the Pearl Harbor area, apparently from fires, and witnesses said fires broke out on Ford Island. The main targets in this action by the Japanese appeared to be Hickman Field, which is the Army Field, and the great naval base at Pearl Harbor, and several planes were reported shot down. Also, we've had a report from Honolulu that policemen and firemen were ordered in a radio broadcast to go to Army and Navy posts immediately. Major George Fielding Elliott, when this dispatch originally came in, pointed out that this may indicate that some of the Japanese resident in that area are being uh, aides in this action by the Japanese against the shore areas. And the firemen and policemen may have been called up to stop any abortive revolutionary action in that area. Here's the first Associated Press dispatch from Honolulu. At least two Japanese bombers, their wings bearing the insignia of the rising sun, appeared over Honolulu at about 7.35 a.m. Honolulu time today and dropped bombs. As I told you a little earlier, these are the two planes of the reported 50 to 100, which have been definitely identified as wearing the insignia of the rising sun. Unverified reports said that a foreign warship appeared off Pearl Harbor and has begun firing at the defenses of that mighty fortified post. Reports also say that the Japanese bombers scored two hits, one at Hickman Field, Air Post, Air Corps Post on Oahu Island, and the other at Pearl Harbor, which set an oil tank afire. American anti-aircraft has set up a terrific din, and the sky also is filled with American battle aircraft. We have just heard that the Press Association dispatches, of course, are pouring in here. We've had a Washington bulletin received just a few minutes ago that disclosed an American Army transport, which was carrying lumber, was torpedoed 1,300 miles west of San Francisco. And we just heard by telephone that Albert Warner in Washington has ruled on the State Department announcement. Royal and throng, noble and song, they search for the child, the redeemer of wrong. With tumbers and drums they go sounding along. With tumbers and drums. That was at 3.45. By 6.30 that evening on CBS, John Daly of the World News speculated. These Japanese envoys, Nomura and Kurusu, requested the appointment with Mr. Hull today. The engagement was set for 1.45 p.m. They arrived some minutes late and in turn were kept waiting before the door to Mr. Hull's office was opened to them at 2.20. In the meantime, the president had prepared the statement which announced that Japan was attacking Pearl Harbor from the air. 
The first would be a severance of diplomatic relations with Tokyo. An immediate naval blockade in which the American Navy would take a leading part, along with British units, is the other probability. Both these steps could be taken by the President on his own executive authority. But an effective naval blockade, of course, could not continue long without hostilities. As a matter of fact, according to the President's announcement, those hostilities are already underway with the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. And just now comes the word from the President's office that a second air attack has been reported on Army and Navy bases in Manila. Thus, we have official announcements from the White House that Japanese airplanes have attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii and have now attacked Army and Navy these pretty young children in anguish of hell were martyred together his anger to quell were martyred together his anger to quell at 7 p.m. on NBC's Red Network radio's highest rated show the Jack Benny program sponsored by Jello took to the air with part two of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. One of their highest rated story arcs of the season, in this spoof, Jack Benny plays the main parts in the take on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which was, at the time, topical, thanks to a movie version of this story starring Spencer Tracy, Ingrid Bergman, and Lana Turner having been released in August of 1941. The show went on with only two interruptions for national and local news, and went on otherwise without a hitch. The team at NBC and Jack Benny's people decided that show must go on, they must continue with the story, and so they presented it in the most complete way that they possibly could. That was the gay ranchero played by the orchestra. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it is my very great honor to bring you a man who last Sunday on this program gave you what was undoubtedly the finest performance of his acting career. That's right, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So without further ado, I give you the only actor in America who can make Jekyll and Hyde sound like Brenda and Cobina, Jack Benny. <laughs> Hello again, this is Jack Benny talking, and Don, that may be your idea of a funny introduction, but to ridicule my performance of last Sunday, which everyone hailed as a dramatic nugget, that really burns me up. Now, take it easy, Jack. I thought you played the part well enough, but I happened to see the picture, and I didn't think you were as good as Spencer Tracy. Oh, you didn't? No. Well, Don, let me ask you something. Uh, who signs your check every week? Spencer Tracy or the Benny Goose that lays the golden egg? <laughs> Take that as my thought for today. But Jack, you don't... Well, how about a band number, Phil? Okay, Dowdy. <laughs> Hold it. Come in. Well, Mr. Benny, you did it again. Were you scared? Look at Herman. He just won't go down. <laughs> What a head he's got. That's the only persimmon I ever saw with brown eyes. Play, Phil. A 
Another war bulletin, Shanghai. The Japanese took over the American Shanghai Power and Light Company this morning. A bulletin from New York. The Japanese news agency broadcast tonight the Japanese foreign minister, Jinganori Togo, summoned U.S. Ambassador Joseph C. Grew and handed to him Japan's reply to Secretary of State Cordell Hull's terms for peace in the Pacific. This news came hours after the bombing of Honolulu. We return you now to Hollywood. Ladies and gentlemen, a special announcement. The entire regular personnel of the sheriff's and police office has been placed on a two-platoon basis with 12-hour shift. All auxiliary personnel has been directed to stand by for emergency service instructions. The regular county defense program is functioning in an orderly manner, and citizens are urged to remain calm and avoid all unnecessary confusion because of hysteria. Citizen volunteers are asked to go quietly to their nearest police or fire stations and offer their services if they wish to help. There is no immediate cause for alarm, and coolness will accomplish more than anything else. At the conclusion of Jack Benny's show on NBC, a listener could have immediately turned their dial and tuned into CBS, which featured the first ever collaboration between artist Orson Welles and writer Norman Corwin. The radio play, tremendously topical for today, tackled many major issues like American pride, American culture, American ethic, and American freedom. About this play, Between Americans, it was said that had it been broadcast at any time, this program would make any American's heart beat a little faster, make him hold his head just a little higher. But since the tragic and foreboding news that came on this day, December 7, 1941, this program, Between Americans, now becomes an American odyssey. This was the first time that Orson Welles and Norman Corwin would work together, but it would not be their last. They collaborated just eight days later on one of the most famous plays in radio history. Between Americans, starring Orson Welles. The Gulf Screen Guild Theater. The Gulf Oil Companies and your good Gulf dealer are proud to present a dramatic picture of this, Our America. Here is your host, Roger Pryor, to tell you about it. Good evening, everyone. 
we welcome you tonight to one of the most timely programs ever heard on the Gulf Screen Guild Theater. Our production of Norman Corwin's script, Between Americans, starring Orson Welles. Broadcast at any time, we believe this program would make every American's heart beat a little faster. Make him hold his head just a little higher. But since the tragic and foreboding news that came today, this program between Americans now becomes an American odyssey. And now, Oscar Bradley's music introduces Orson Welles, who will talk between Americans. This program is Between Americans. That's where the title comes in. We hope you like it, but you don't have to. At any rate, nobody's going to make you stick around and listen to it. That's one of the advantages of being an American. Now, tonight we're doing something quite foreign to the type of thing usually presented by the Gulf Screen Guild Theater. Instead of telling a story about five or six people, we're telling a story about a hundred million. This happens to include you, listener, whatever your name may be. As a matter of fact, names don't bother real Americans very much. Not when we've got states named after French kings and English queens are lifted right out of the Latin language like Montana or out of the Spanish like Nevada and towns. You know, if you were to hold a convention of all the people who live in foreign-sounding American towns, we could fill quite a sizable stadium. Among the delegates registering on the first day would be... Me, I'm the delegate from London, Minnesota. I'm in from Dublin, New Hampshire. Flew in this morning from Cairo, Illinois. Huh? Uh, whose turn, me? Uh, I'm from Canton, Connecticut. I'm from Paris, Texas. I came all the way from Shanghai, West Virginia. Warsaw, Georgia. I'm the delegate representing Moscow, Kentucky. My town is Toronto, Kansas. As for me, Lisbon, Maine. Delegate from Madrid, Alabama reporting. I'm from Stockholm, South Dakota. Drove down this afternoon from Bombay, New York. Hitchhiked here from Baghdad, Florida. Now it's winter time, strangers travel far and near, and we wish you, send you a happy new year. Today, particularly, people are thinking about their country pretty hard. Some of them for the first time in their lives. People are wondering where we're headed. Men are being called on to get ready to defend America. A lot of them are thinking in terms of what is there to defend. Well, now, America means a lot of things to a lot of people. Most of them are solid patriots, only they don't know it. They don't have to wear a red and white and blue button in their lapels to prove it. They don't have to agree with or even listen to people like this. My fellow citizens, in this great state of flail and plethora, we can pick the dog squirtle your taxes. Our great country is cribbly bolted up and can wackle tablewax. And your Lagunoy Rillerah, Harrington forever! You got a good hunch most people prefer the quiet kind of speaker. Like the fellow who got up on a platform in a Pennsylvania town one day and said, The world will little note nor long remember what we say here. That was the Gettysburg Address he was referring to. As a matter of fact, he didn't get such good reviews the next morning. Listen to what the Chicago Times had to say. The cheek of every American must tingle with shame as he reads the silly, flat, and dishwatery utterances 
of the man who has to be pointed out to intelligent foreigners as the President of the United States. Of course, the rival paper in Chicago took the opposite point of view. Rival papers often do. But that business of calling a president a ham is really something to be proud of. I mean the right to print a piece saying a president makes a sound like dishwater. Nobody dragged the editors off to jail, even if they were wrong. That's important. Comes under the heading of free press. As soon as anybody starts gagging the press, any press, watch out. Americans don't like that. And by the way, we got on earth to be calling ourselves Americans all the time when we're really only United Staters. We're a little selfish about that. It's America down there in Chile, too. All the way down the spine of the Andes. If any of you folks are hearing this down around Mexico or Honduras or Salvador or Argentina, or even if you're an Eskimo in the Arctic, we hope you'll overlook our calling ourselves Americans as though we were the only ones in the hemisphere. We do that just because it's so much easier to say than anything else, and also because it sounds so good. And by the way, before we leave the subject, what about the original American, the Indians? There's a forgotten race for you. How about the Indian on the nickel and the buffalo who roamed the back of the great American jit? Seems a shame. No two ways about it. We have forgotten those 100% Americans who went down to quarantine to meet the Mayflower. We don't see them around in person very much these days. But their ghosts are still with us. You ever ask yourself what America means to you? Does it mean 1776? Columbia, the gem of the ocean? Big business? The Bill of Rights? Uncle Sam? Chances are it means none of these things. Chances are it means something very personal to each of you. Something close to your heart which you'd miss like the very blazes if you were stranded abroad might have nothing at all to do with quotes from Madison or acts of Congress. It might be just the feeling about the crisp autumns in New England. It might be the memory of the way they smooth off the infield between the games of a doubleheader. might be a thing as small as your little finger. You hear people speak of home defense? This is the home, the home to be defended. The square dance down the Glen apiece. No man Tuckerman's barn. This is the America of all the couples dancing there tonight. That's what the nation means to Butch and Fred and Jenny and Alvira. And this is America to all the boys and girls from Malvern County and their folks at home waiting for them. What do you suppose America means to that auto repair man in the grease cake dungarees who works in the garage in the corner of Willow and Elm Street? It means quite likely crawling under the 1936 Buick and dragging an electric light bulb on a long extension after him. Hey, Joe, hand me that wrench. What wrench? The wrench at your feet. I got to finish this apprentice job. Why don't he sell that jalopy and get a new boat? Hey, you want to talk us out of business? As long as he keeps his car, we get a repair job once in a while. Yeah. It's a beautiful right. country. Even though it has a lot of incorrigible badlands and corrigible slums. Aren't many countries have as much in them to look at and wonder about as this one? 
This can be a rather fierce country, too. Ever see the way its mountains frown down sometimes? Know what they're frowning at? Some rumors they heard about petty intrigue, about political bosses and shysters and fakers and grafters and men who make a business of jipping the people. Ever see the way the sky suddenly gets black and the thunder roars and the lightning starts throwing itself around? Ever see a storm whipping it up across the Great Lakes? That's how the American winds feel about anybody who denies anybody else a fair trial or free speech or the right to assemble or the right to worship as one sees fit. Well then, in the final analysis, there can be no analysis. Many great thinkers and poets have attempted it, but the country's too big for any one man. There's Walt Whitman and Carl Sandburg and Tom Wolfe, and they all felt the magnitude and magnificence of the nation that got put together piece by piece like a jigsaw puzzle. They felt it and wrote about it in unforgettable ways. But still, it's bigger than any of them. America is not a map, a poem, an almanac, a mural, a building in the heart of Washington. It's a territory possessed by people, possessed by an ideal. That's all, listeners. Just wanted to talk between Americans for a half hour of a Sunday evening. No big finish here. No brass section bringing down the curtain. Just a little music to follow a friendly little chat. Good night, Americans. At 8.30, back on CBS, Raymond Edward Johnson was the host of The Inner Sanctum Mysteries, a horror series normally filled with macabre terror that on a day like December 7th, 1941, seemed even more omnipotent. Inner Sanctum Mysteries, brought to you by the makers of Carter's Little Liverpool, the best Friend to your sunny disposition. Good evening, friends. This is Raymond, your host, welcoming you again to the Inner Sanctum. Come in, won't you? Why am I smiling? Oh, but I always smile when I open the creaking door on Sunday night. You see, each week when I say good evening, I think to myself, and good evening for what? And of course, there's only one answer to that question. A good evening for a murder. Tonight, Inner Sanctum Mysteries brings you The Island of Death, an original radio mystery drama written by Robert Newman, and presented for your entertainment by the makers of Carter's Little Liverpool. Ready to begin as strange and terrible a tale as ever turned a man's hair gray overnight. 
A tale of voodoo, conjuring, black magic. Oh. Oh, now you're smiling. You don't believe in voodoo, huh? <laughs> Good. Here is another war bulletin. London. The Netherlands government in exile in London issued a statement today saying it considers a state of war to exist between the Netherlands and Japan. Keep tuned to the station for further development. At 9.45, actress and singer Dinah Shore was the star of a new program sponsored by Bristol Myers Company. Dinah was the top-charting female vocalist of the 1940s. In this particular program, the first song with music maestro Paul Laval is What Do You Think I Am, followed by Love Me or Leave Me. This was a very fitting and poignant program for the evening. At this point in time, Sunday at 9.45 on the evening of December 7, 1941, the details were still coming in. It was obvious a Japanese attack had happened. There was panic, or there wasn't panic, depending on the kind of reports you heard. But what was obvious was that America would never be the same. Paul Laval and his little woodwinds are going to play one of his original compositions. Oh, Paul, have you got anything to say about the next selection? Oh, it's nothing much, Dinah. It's just a number I wrote several months ago. Well, now, there's modesty for you. Just the number I wrote several months ago. Ladies and gentlemen, just in case you don't know, Paul Laval is a sort of musical triple threat. He composes music, arranges it, and then, why, then he conducts it. And is he good? Just listen to Paul Laval conduct Paul Laval's arrangement of Paul Laval's composition, Memoirs of a Dilemma. Dinah, are you going to sing a song tonight for some branch of the service as you have on past programs? Harry, two weeks ago, I received a request from five boys stationed out on Tiny Wake Island, 4,000 miles out in the Pacific. I promised then I would sing this song for them tonight. In spite of all that has happened, I shall, and I hope they're listening, because if singing their song can bring them a little bit of happiness and bring home a little closer, especially tonight... Believe me, I'm mighty proud to sing it. So for our fellas out on Wake Island, 7,000 miles away from us here in New York, here's their song, How Deep is the Ocean. How much do I love you? I'll tell you no lie. How deep is the ocean? How high is the sky? 
Another war bulletin. Canada has declared war on Japan. Keep tuned to this station for further developments. How far would I travel To be where you are How far is the journey From here to a star I ever loved you How much would I Next morning, Monday, December 8th, not a lot had changed. The selected service laws to make changes which would allow draftees and National Guardsmen to fight outside the Western Hemisphere. This is a cut-in from 9 a.m. on NBC's Blue Network with Don McNeil's The Breakfast Club. The Republic of Panama ordered the arrest of Japanese residents. Mexico and Cuba pledged their support of the United States along with several South American nations. Costa Rica, Canada, the Dutch East Indies, and possibly Australia have already declared war. In London, the Home Office declared a state of war between Japan and Britain, and police began an immediate roundup. Parliament is acting this morning to make a formal declaration. On the Russian war front this morning, the Red Army claims to have recaptured several villages around Moscow, wiping out 30,000 Nazi troops in the operation. Strauss asserts that Russian forces have now cleared the highway all the way from the capital to the munition city of Tula, 100 miles to the south. This news came to you from the NBC newsroom in Chicago. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Eventually, as we've all experienced at one point or another, even in the face of tragedy and monumental uncertainty about life, there is a return to normalcy. At 5 p.m. on December 8, 1941, and like on most Mondays, just before supper time, The Adventures of Superman was broadcast over the airways of the mutual broadcasting system from its flagship affiliate, WOR New York. For children and adults alike, times of great confusion and fear bring upon the need for a hero. Look! Up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! Yes, it's Superman! Strange visitor from the planet Krypton, who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can leap tall buildings of a single bound, race a speeding bullet to its target, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth and justice. ...in the Andes Mountains for nine American engineers who disappeared while surveying the route of a trans-hemisphere highway, Clark Kent, Jimmy Olsen, Perry White, Lois Lane, and Bronson the pilot were captured and imprisoned in the palace dungeon of the Inca Indian. But Kent and Perry White slipped out while the others were asleep and eavesdropped on a meeting of the Supreme Council. They overheard Nero, chief of the Inca nation, order the five prisoners brought before him. Hurrying back to the dungeon, Kent and White lost their way in the maze of corridors and accidentally found John Craig, one of the missing engineers. Together, they located the dungeon, only to discover that Lois, Jimmy, and Bronson were gone. Subduing free Inca guards and donning their ornate costumes, Kent, White, and Craig went in search of Lois and Jimmy, 
unaware that Nehru had sentenced them to death. Leaving Craig to stand watch, Kent and Perry White crossed the darkened courtyard just in time to see a detachment of native guards marching away toward the mysterious Valley of the Shadows. Suddenly, Kent stopped short and stared at the backs of the marching guards. Listen. That's strange. What strange? But I saw a flash of blonde hair among those guards marching out of the courtyard. What are you talking about, Kent? Blonde hair like Jimmy's. I'd like to investigate, Mr. White. Investigate what? Group of warriors. Mad? I'd just as soon stick my head into a lion's mouth. Now, come on. We're going to the palace and no place else. Suppose you go on and I'll go along. Nothing doing. You're sticking with me. All right. I was probably mistaken anyway. Come on, let's go. That evening at 8 p.m. on NBC, the cavalcade of America took to the air with a story entitled Men in White. It was a radio adaptation of a Pulitzer Prize-winning story about a brilliant young medical intern, one of the army of student nurses and doctors who dedicate their lives to the relief of human suffering and the preservation of human life. It was a fitting story for the moment, and it's important to keep in mind that not only did the Pearl Harbor and Manila strikes happen the day before, but it was also the middle of the holiday season, where ordinarily glad tidings are abound. Don't cry, Mother, don't cry. Yes, he's going to live. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to The Cavalcade of America, sponsored by DuPont, starring Francho Tone in Men in White. Tonight, there is but one thought in the mind of every American. Victory. The victory we mean to have. That victory will depend in some measure, perhaps in large measure, upon America's technical skill. Upon the kind of expert knowledge we have spoken of so often on The Cavalcade as know-how. America has answered the treacherous attack of the Japanese by declaring war to the victorious end. It is going to cost billions and billions of dollars to guarantee victory for our democracy. Buy United States defense bonds and stamps, as many as you can. Get them at your bank, post office, or savings and loan association. Don't forget, next week, Cavalcade presents Orson Welles in the exciting comedy drama, The Great Man Boat. On tonight's program, the orchestra and the original musical score were under the direction of Don Burry. On the Cavalcade of America, your announcer is Clayton Collier, sending best wishes from Dubai. This is the Red Network of the National Broadcasting Company. With a similar theme, yet a more lighthearted tone, at 9 p.m. on CBS, the Lux Radio Theater, sponsored by Lux Soap, broadcast a play entitled, The Doctor Takes a Wife. The Lux Radio Theater.
throughout America tonight, this inspired music lifts every heart to new patriotism. As all of us join all of you in pledging full allegiance to our country. We've asked the Columbia Broadcasting System to interrupt our program tonight with any important news developments. We here in the Lux Radio Theater, as well as you who are listening, want to keep in touch with any and all events bearing upon this national emergency. In the meantime, this theater carries on as usual, which, as you know, is one of the oldest and finest traditions of the theater. Tonight, the Lux Radio Theater brings you Melvin Douglas and Virginia Bruce and The Doctor Takes a Wife. A motley parade of characters from all walks of life constantly pass in review on the American screen. Rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief, and every other kind of people that it takes to make a world. But judging from box office records, perhaps the most romantic of the whole lot, for some reason that I'll leave to you, is The Doctor. He seems to exert even more fascination over the American people than the cowboy and the aviator. And perhaps, perhaps Columbia Picture had this in mind when they filmed The Doctor Takes a Wife. It's the story of a doctor who suddenly finds himself married to an author, a beautiful young lady author, who has just made a fortune out of a book telling other young ladies the advantages of not getting married at all. And that's such an embarrassing set of circumstances that it makes a perfect beginning for a comedy. This play will put you in the proper frame of mind to do your Christmas shopping. So you'd better get started on that pretty soon. Because I believe the calendar shows there are just 14 more shopping days left before Christmas. Of course, any one of those 14 days could get off to a very bad start if you suddenly discovered that you were all out of Lux Flakes. You know, there are two kinds of flakes that make a white Christmas. Snowflakes and Lux Flakes. So while you're concentrating on what you're going to give Uncle George and Aunt Susan, put a little Christmas cheer in your housekeeping by giving yourself some Lux Flakes. And now here's The Doctor Takes a Wife, starring Melvin Douglas as Tim and Virginia Bruce as June, with Lynn Carver as Marilyn and Edgar Barrier as John Pierce. The curtain rises for the first act. No, madam, we absolutely won't want to have this question before. Noon is on spinach. Will you give me a copy of Spinach? I want two copies of Spinach's on spinach mailed to my aunt. Buy a copy of Spinach's on spinach, my dear, and read every word. You'll never look at Harry again. The author's a bachelor girl, and they say her book answers everything. Is this the book that tells you how to put men in their places? Give me another copy of Spinach. How unusual. You know, I think the dean deserves a couple of more cookies. Ladies and gentlemen, before we continue with our play, the makers of Lux Flakes switch you to New York for the latest news development, direct from CBS. This is John Daly reporting from the CBS newsroom in New York, and here are the latest developments in the war with Japan. The first phase of the Japanese surprise attack against British and American possessions in the Pacific appears to be continuing full force. Late reports are sketchy, but they indicate that the offensive is still favoring the Japanese. CBS correspondent Tom Worthen reported from Manila a short time ago that there have been six raids on the Philippines since the war started, from Luzon in the north to Mindanao in the south. Manila itself has had three alarms, but Worthen said no bombs have actually dropped inside the city. Japanese forces are said to have landed on Lubang Island near the entrance to Manila Harbor. And Tokyo now claims the occupation of the American-owned islands Guam and Wake 
and the Japanese maintained that a blow of annihilation was dealt Hawaii's Pearl Harbor naval base in yesterday's initial attack. According to official Tokyo claims, an American warship has been sunk off Guam and several American merchant ships have been captured. Tokyo has not admitted a single naval loss. Meantime, Governor Poindexter of Hawaii reported a short time ago that Hawaii has been calm since the first blow. Official American accounts say that at least 1,500 persons were killed there by Japanese bomb attacks. The Japanese news agency Domei claimed just, <clears throat> excuse me, claimed just a few minutes ago that almost 300 American planes have been destroyed in the two-day-old Pacific War. On America's part, that war became official a little over five hours ago when President Roosevelt signed the war resolution that had been passed in Congress with only one dissenting vote. Earlier in the day, Britain declared war, and Prime Minister Churchill pledged the full resources of the British Empire in the struggle with totalitarianism and aggression. Japan now faces not only the United States and Britain, but these other members of the non-Axis world. Nicaragua, Canada, Costa Rica, Haiti, Guatemala, San Salvador, the Dominican Republic, Australia, Honduras, the Free French Government, and the Greek and Belgian governments in exile. Mexico and Colombia have broken off diplomatic relations with Japan, and they are expected in the war tomorrow along with South Africa. China, which has been fighting Japan for four years, is reported preparing a declaration not only against Japan, but against Germany and Italy. On the West Coast, air raid preparations are well underway. It's just been reported that all San Francisco radio stations are now off the air under orders from federal authorities. CBS correspondent William Slocum phoned that news from San Francisco just a minute ago. And since we've been on the air, we have just received a late bulletin from San Francisco. The News Chronicle reports that 50 unidentified planes have been sighted flying from the southwest towards San Francisco. It also reported that all lights have been blacked out for 10 miles below the metropolis. That is a bulletin that has just been handed to me here in New York in the CBS newsroom. Now, a similar order closing all radio stations in Spokane, Washington, has been issued and the Army has ordered the evacuation of all women, children, aged and infirm persons from regions around Fort MacArthur at San Pedro. In Washington tonight, the White House announced that President Roosevelt will speak to the country in a fireside chat at 10 o'clock tomorrow night, Eastern Standard Time. The White House also said that lease lend aid to Britain and Russia will not be interrupted by the outbreak of war in the Pacific. At the same time, Presidential Secretary Stephen Early issued a statement denouncing Germany. The Nazis, he said, have done everything possible to push Japan into the conflict. So far, neither Germany nor Italy has carried out the provisions of the tripartite Axis Pact and declared war against the United States. As you know, the pact said that if any member of the Axis Alliance becomes involved in war with a power that was at peace when the pact was signed in 1940, the other two members would go to the assistance of that member. The propaganda statements out of Berlin would seem to confirm the charge made by the White House tonight, though. At least the Nazis say Japan kept them informed throughout the preparations for attack in the Pacific. Earlier today, the Rome Radio said that a state of war exists between the United States and the Axis powers, but that claim has not been officially confirmed so far in either Rome or Berlin. And with the United States united this evening in one single resolve to destroy Japanese militarism once and for all, American recruiting officers report that they have been swamped with men seeking to enlist. Thousands of men in every state of the Union have volunteered, even demanded, that they be allowed to serve. Before we leave you, we repeat again this bulletin which has just come in from San Francisco. Since we've been on the air, we've received this bulletin. The News Chronicle in San Francisco reports that 50 unidentified planes have been sighted flying from the southwest towards San Francisco. It's also reported that all lights have been blacked out for 10 miles below the metropolis and over an area 35 miles along the coast. And that's the latest news on the Pacific War.
Columbia will interrupt its regularly scheduled programs to bring you the latest news. Our next scheduled news broadcast will be at 10 o'clock. And now we return you to the Lux Radio Theater in Hollywood. We continue with the second act of The Doctor Takes a Wife. June is now aware that Tim pretended to be married only because his professorship was at stake. Tim has explained the situation to his fiancée, Marilyn, and secured a complete pardon. Throughout the week, references to impending war and national pride were littered throughout the shows on air. Take, for instance, an episode of the situation comedy Fibber McGee and Molly, broadcast on Tuesday evening, December 9th. In this particular episode called I Can Get It For You Wholesale, Fibber McGee finds a way to get things wholesale, which immediately causes his friends from the town of Wistful Vista to descend upon Fibber and Molly's home with requests. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. and Johnson's self-polishing glow coat presents Fibber McGee and Molly, written by Don Quinn, with songs by Martha Tilton and the King's Men, and music by Billy Mills. The show opens with Don't Ever Leave Me. for our listeners in a telegram from the president of S.C. Johnson & Son Incorporated, our sponsor. In these serious days, there can be no division of opinion. The United States is at war. We are all ready and eager to do our part. The makers of Johnson's Wax and Glow Coat believe it is in the public interest to continue programs as entertaining as Fibber McGee and Molly. They have a place in national morale. So you can continue to hear Fibber McGee and Molly and still be in touch with latest developments. We have asked the National Broadcasting Company to feel free at any time to cut into our programs with important news flashes and announcements. Signed, H.F. Johnson, Jr. to the effect that the female is more deadly than the male. But around the first of the month, the male can be pretty deadly, too. <laughs> and here at 79 Whisper Vista, the postman has just left a stack of stuff, which on the breakfast table reaches halfway up the coffee pot. And it's all for Fibber McGee and Molly. Do you know where I can buy a large globe of the world for my office? Why, sure, Latrivia. I can get you one wholesale. How much do you want to pay for a good globe? Oh, it doesn't matter much, McGee. As long as I get a good one, things are happening so fast these days, I like to keep informed. You want a globe with Japan on it, Mr. Mayor? Why, certainly. Well, then you better get one quick. <laughs> Six days later, on the evening of Monday, December 15, 1941, the entire world and radio landscape changed with the broadcasting of We Hold These Truths, 
a play in honor of the 150th anniversary of the signing of the Bill of Rights. Written by Norman Corwin, We Hold These Truths was simultaneously broadcast over all four major radio networks. It was the first of its kind, a true broadcast, unbroken by professional animosity and boosted by the Armed Forces Radio Service so that all servicemen and women could also hear. For Norman Corwin, no single year encompassed the greatest palette of his radio work like 1941. He had returned from a stint writing in Hollywood when given the radio show The Columbia Workshop by William B. Lewis for six months. For 26 weeks in a row, during the spring, summer, and autumn of 1941, while Ted Williams hit 406 and Joe DiMaggio got a hit in 56 consecutive games, while Bob Hope performed his first USO show at California's March Field, and while Walt Disney Pictures released Dumbo, Corwin wrote. Today, these plays are dubbed 26 by Corwin. The show concluded its mammoth run on November 9, 1941, less than a month before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Corwin penned Between Americans while he was working on We Hold These Truths. The ensemble cast was the greatest ever assembled at the time. We Hold These Truths. This is a program about the making of a promise and the keeping of a promise. This is a program about the rights of people. This is a program coming to you over the combined radio networks of the United States, bringing you the voices of Americans, bringing you the voice of the President of the United States. This is a program for listeners in all zones of continental time, for listeners on ships away from home, for listeners in uniform, for listeners on the American islands in the two great oceans. This is a program about the guarantee made to the people of America 150 years ago. A guarantee that has been kept through peace and war and peace and war. A guarantee we call the Bill of Rights. Arnold, Walter Brennan, Bob Burns, Norman Corwin, Bernard Herman, Walter Houston, Marjorie Maine, Edward G. Robinson, Corporal James Stewart, loaned to us for this occasion by the Army Air Corps, Rudy Valley, and Orson Welles. My name is Barrymore. I am one of several actors gathered in the studio in California and the shores that face an enemy across an ocean now Pacific in name only. We are here tonight to join the 130 million fellow Americans in praise of a document that men have fought for, that men are fighting for, that men will keep on fighting for as long as freedom is a strong word falling sweet upon the ear. But this is not a night of names, of personalities. Our names or any names are meaningless unless your names are added. Unless you join us. You, for whom the sacred rites were written and to whom their keeping is entrusted. 
You, the guardians of what has been bequeathed to you by millions like yourselves, and by the toil of centuries as dark and menacing as this we live in. You, the people of the Federated States. It is an attempt, an attempt which could succeed only if those who have inherited the gift of liberty had lost the manhood to preserve it. But we Americans know that the determination of this generation of our people, our generation to preserve liberty, is as fixed and certain as the determination of that earlier generation of Americans was to win it. We will not, under any threat or in the face of any danger, surrender the guarantees of liberty our forefathers framed for us in our Bill of Rights. We hold with all the passion of our hearts and minds to those commitments of the human spirit. We are solemnly determined that no power or combination of powers of this earth shall shake our hold upon them. We covenant with each other before all the world that having taken up arms in the defense of liberty, we will not lay them down before liberty is once again secure in the world we live in. For that security we pray. For that security we act now and evermore. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard the President of the United States speaking... 75 years ago today, the fabric of American society was forever altered. The bombing of Pearl Harbor, much like the attack on the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001, is most significant because it forced Americans to come face to face with vulnerability. It's something that many people in other parts of the world come face to face with much more often. I'm incredibly thankful to have grown up in a country and in a city like New York where the, for the most part I am sheltered from the kind of world fears that other people in other parts of the world have to deal with much more often. Not only has it been 75 years since the bombing of Pearl Harbor, but in eight days it will now be 225 years since the signing of the Bill of Rights in 1791. This episode of Breaking Walls was meant to take a peek back in time and learn from previous generations of Americans. I hope that you've enjoyed the first in our new series of Radio Chronicles. Expect one new kind of Radio Chronicle per month going forward. I also hope, as we enter the middle of the holiday season, that you are living each day fully to the best of your ability and look in the mirror each day liking who you are. If you've got things on your mind that you need to get off your chest and think I can help in some way, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. You can find me at james at thewallbreakers.com. Once again, if this is the first time you're hearing Breaking Walls and want to subscribe, you can do so at soundcloud.com slash thewallbreakers and at iTunes by searching for The Wall Breakers. If you're interested in learning more about what The Wall Breakers is, check out thewallbreakers.com. I plan to present two more podcasts before the end of this month, so you'll be hearing more from me in the coming weeks. In the meantime, keep getting out there, guys. Keep breaking those walls.
My name is James Scully, and this has been Breaking Walls episode number 47. Until next time, I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. Thank you.